Hello, hello, wherever you are. Uh, good morning or good afternoon or good evening, as the case may be. Welcome to the LSE public lecture series online, of course, these times uh, around. My name is Piroshka Nagy-Mohácsi. I am an economist. I work as the program director of the Institute of Public of Global Affairs at the LSE School of Public Policy. The subject of today's uh, event is something that we all itching to learn about, is fiscal policies uh, to support people and growth for recovery. This is part of our now long-standing COVID series at the LSE that we have launched back in March, really a very different world and universe. Um, and now here we are after many events and a very exciting one, which we host together with the LSE School of Public Policy, the LSE's Financial Markets Group, in collaboration with the International Monetary Fund and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Indeed, today, again, this is about fiscal policy for crisis management, but I think we also want to hear about recovery. We want to focus on recovery and the role of fiscal policy in this, because uh, partly because we are all really <laughs> honestly fed up with the, with the pandemic and with all the hardship that imposes on people, societies, economies and really want to look beyond. Um, but it's partly because the lockdown is, following some good news, uh, encouraging news recently, the lockdown is now being eased to various degrees, various dictates, obviously a lot of country variations, but it's being leased up. And then we can be a little bit more uh, optimistic, uh, perhaps looking beyond. We are not thinking, I think, collectively that the, cri the, the crisis is gone and the virus is gone. It's not, but we, we will have to live with that, um, with the situation and manage the risk and the virus, uh, pandemic-related risk. Um, and there, at the center of this, is very much government policy. It's interesting uh, to note, um, just a key thought, that this time around, unlike in the global financial crisis just a decade ago, Really, fiscal policy is the only game in town. It used to be the central bank uh, during the global financial crisis. Now, this is fiscal policy. Central banks have played a very important supportive role, but they, uh, the, the main uh, the conductor, so to speak, is really of, of all the action is government. And in a very broad, broad sense, fiscal policy by the government itself um, at various levels but also by the IMF, actually, in his recent fiscal uh, uh, monitor, has called it the other government, state-owned enterprises and development banks. We are not going to speak about the quasi-fiscal operation of central banks. Uh, that will be actually a, a subject of a forthcoming uh, other webinar. We have a truly terrific panel to discuss all this bringing expertise and knowledge uh, from um, both academia and international organizations. We have two IFR as represented, the IMF and the EBRD, and of course, our very uh, own uh, LSE Academia. Let me introduce the panel members. From the IMF, we have Catherine Patillo, who is Assistant Director in the Fiscal Affairs Department and the Chief of uh, the policy, uh, Fiscal Policy and Services Division. Catherine has built up a vast policy experience at the IMN and also has, a, as many of you, has a strong research record. Then we will have uh, two um, senior economists um, also working in the Fiscal Affairs Department, Rafael Lam and Mehdi Rassi, 
their presentation um, will be um, uh, kicking off uh, today's panel. They are co-authors of the fiscal monitor uh, on which part of the, uh, of the, of the panel uh, draws. From the LSE, uh, we welcome Simeon Jankov, who is co-director of the LSE's prestigious financial markets group. But to many of you, uh, Simeon uh, was most known perhaps as an outstanding uh, Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance uh, of Bulgaria in an equally difficult time, I would say, in 2009 and 2013, and has helped his, his country, but also the region, um, to get to the path of recovery then. So he brings to the panel a rare combination of, of top-notch academic and policy expertise. And last not least, we will hear um, from the EBRD, um, represented by Joka Kochan. Joka is uh, a senior economist at the EBRD's Office of the Chief Economist. She actually also has worked for the IMF uh, previously. So we have a fantastic panel. Um, and before we start, I am obligated to give uh, our uh, kind audience some uh, housekeeping matters. As you many returning uh, viewers know, the hashtag uh, for this series is hashtag LSTCOVID-19, quite self-explanatory. This, onla this online event is being recorded um, and hopefully will be made available as a podcast on the LSE uh, webcast podcast series, subject to no technical difficulties. And uh, a few things about the Zoom facilities that we are using. I know that most of you are familiar, you are returning uh, audience and very familiar with the Zoom facilities. As usual, uh, there will be a, a, a chance to, for you to put up your questions to our panelists. Um, and we really encourage you to do so. We want to an engaged audience. Um, you can use uh, the Q&A feature at the bottom of your uh, screen. You can address the, your question specifically to a panel member or, or raise the question uh, in, in a general form, and then I will allocate it. The questions will be submitted to uh, me, and I will uh, pose them and then direct them uh, to the person, uh, to the speaker. Please let us know your affiliation and name. Um, and we are very keen, of course, to hear from our students, uh, alumni, and incoming students to the LSE. So please just let us know. Finally, um, as you know, probably we also live stream this event on Facebook. And you can pose questions uh, also um, uh, through that channel. And we will try to bring in as many as, 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 as possible. But enough of the housekeeping and the introduction, uh, so let's get started. Um, I am turning an, uh, uh, to the IMF team leader, uh, Katrin, um, the word for a, a few words of introduction on your side. Katrin? Thank you, Poroshka. Thanks for this, this excellent introduction. We're very happy to, to be here. As you mentioned, the presentations and discussion that we'll have today are based on our April 2020 fiscal monitor, which has taken on even more importance, as you note, in this time of the COVID pandemic. And what we did in the, in the fiscal monitor was, first, we looked at how governments then can save lives and protect livelihoods during the pandemic. And the message was simple, do whatever it takes, but make sure to keep the receipts. 
secondly, then we started to look forward um, and to look at how governments then can help in supporting the recovery as the lockdowns ease. And here we proposed a framework that we called IDEAS, which is about thinking about how investment can be brought forward, how governments can use smart uh, discretionary policies, tax and spending, and how they can enhance their automatic stabilizers, particularly social safety nets, and how these kinds of policies then could help uh, as we come out of, of uh, the lockdowns. Um, and third, then the, the fiscal monitor looked at state-owned enterprises, the other government, which is an important topic uh, at any time. Um, and we looked then at how governments could uh, help get the most out of state-owned enterprises, how taxpayers can make sure that we get value for money from state-owned enterprises. But they're, of course, even more important now uh, during this time of uh, the pandemic as the government's role in the economy uh, has, has intensified. Um, so we're very much looking forward to the discussion, the questions, the interaction with the audience today. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Kathleen, uh, for getting us into, into the panel mood. And I turn uh, to Raphael uh, Lam. Raphael, the floor, uh, the virtual is yours. Okay, thank you. Let me share my screen on some of the slides uh, so that uh, everyone and the participant can take a look at uh, some of the materials that we prepared uh, at the fiscal monitor. So as Kathy mentioned, this is a summary of the fiscal monitor. Uh, so basically, uh, she has already outlined some of the roadmap or the overview of our presentation today. Uh, we'll start looking at some of the global trends pre-COVID-19 and the global economy, and then we will look at some of the fiscal policies and the strategies in how to handle during the pandemics as far as after the pandemic uh, started to phrase us out. We also need to think about what is the policies going forward after the greater lockdown. So in terms of the global trends, uh, so certainly one particular issues that is uh, very particular at this period is that there is a low interest rate. So the debt insurance costs are currently at a very low level historically. So if you take a look at uh, this chart, which shows the 10-year government bond yields, the low rates are unprecedented over the last 115 years. And many governments, including in the advanced economies, are borrowing at a negative interest rate, with over one-fifth of the global bonds are now trading at a negative yields now. Uh, the second global trend is about high public and private debt. Here shows the public debt is high and rising. Uh, the rated average debt to GDP ratios across all income groups, advanced economies, emerging markets, as well as no income developing countries are all rising rapidly, partly because of the pandemic impact and the associated fiscal response. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, even at the low interest rate, you could see that the interest debt service burden as a share of the tax revenue that uh, the solid black lines across income groups are also rising over time. So as a result, the public debt remains a key source of vulnerabilities in many countries, and which is likely to constrain some of the scope of fiscal policy in response to the pandemic. The third global trend is a very subdued or sluggish growth environment with no inflation. 
So global growth was already at a very subdued level uh, at about 3% of growth in 2019. And now with many countries experienced a sharp contraction during the pandemic. This period of slow growth is particularly concerning because a lot of the emerging markets as well as advanced countries will need high growth to quell some of the rising domestic, social and political tensions. Inflation rates have also been very modest and anchored at the very low levels below the central bank's target. So in terms of the fiscal policy's response to support people during the COVID-19 pandemics, we look into uh, some of the country measures and document what happened globally. So many governments have put forward uh, swift and significant emergency lifelines to protect people in response to the pandemic, including, for example, cash transfers, government paid sick leaves, and some of the temporary tax cuts. So at the fund, at the IMF, we have been trying to keep track of the fiscal measures across countries since the outbreak. So the total uh, size of the fiscal support is about $9 trillion as of mid-May, and it's likely to increase as con countries continue to roll out some packages since then. At a speed amount, uh, roughly speaking, about half is on direct budget support for revenue and spending measures, and the other half is on the liquidity support, which you see on the right-hand side chart, on loans, equities, and guarantees. So G20 economies account for the bulk of the global fiscal support, about 90%. So on the left chart, you could see that the COVID-19 fiscal response have been much stronger than those during the global financial crisis. Another observation is that the government is to provide sizable liquidity support through the public sector loans and guarantees. For example, the liquidity support is more than 15% of GDP each in Germany, Italy and United Kingdom. So this is very sizable. And at the fund, we will continue to update some of the numbers. And in the fiscal monitor, we also track the country-specific uh, fiscal measures. So in light of all these measures, uh, certainly one of the adverse impact is on the public finances, which includes, as you could see in the chart, there's a significant surge of uh, government debt as well as a deterioration in terms of the fiscal balances. And those changes are significant more so than during the global financial crisis. So overall, uh, the fiscal deficit are expected to widen um, by about 12% and more, and the global debt is estimated to rise uh, more significantly. So in terms of the types of the fiscal measures, so certainly, uh, as I mentioned, some governments roll out the revenues uh, measures and provide additional spending, while other governments provide liquidity support. So this is important to keep track because various measures have different implications on public finances. Some, like additional spending and tax deferral, may affect the budget balances and have debt implications. However, others such as uh, government provision of guarantees may not change the budget balances or debt today, but it will have some implications down the road uh, on debt, particularly if those guarantees are called and the government incurred losses. So there are sizable of uh, contingent liabilities that would pose fiscal risk down the road. And at the same time, some of the liquidity support is not provided directly by the government, but uh, through 
uh, state-owned banks or enterprises. And that's why it is important to also look into the other side of the government as we keep track of the fiscal policies in response to the pandemic. The IMF has, uh, in the latest fiscal monitor in the April version, we also include a chapter on the state-owned banks and enterprises, which is also relevant in the context of the pandemic, given some of the fiscal responses uh, undertaken for those entities. So uh, state-owned enterprises or SOEs are among the world's largest firms. Many have multinational uh, status and have operations across the borders. So for instance, in this chart, you could see that uh, let's say Europe has a lot of uh, SOEs that are, have cross-border operations, about 600 of them. And they are particularly present in key sectors such as oil and energy sector, as well as financial sector. So in terms of the policy mandates, they certainly face some challenges. Most of them are well understood. Here I want to highlight the issue of underfunded mandates because this is some of the relatively less focused but an important angle. This is especially critical when SOEs are not allowed to charge full prices to cover all the costs, such as maintaining some of the infrastructure. In some cases, the gap between the costs and prices is very large, putting at risk the ability of the SOEs to operate in a sustainable manner. The weak performance of SOEs could also lead to significant uh, fiscal risk, including because SOE may borrow excessively, just as this chart has shown. So that sometimes is higher than uh, the government debt by SOEs. The support to non-financial SOEs in some countries are very sizable, as much as 10% of GDP. So. Uh, um, important questions for the policy angle will be how to get most out of the SOEs given their existing mandates and existing challenges. Here, uh, we advise the uh, governments or the policymakers could use public resources appropriately on those SOEs. For instance, periodically review some of the rationales for SOEs, such as those uh, rationales provided in Germany or Netherlands. Uh, Close or privatize some of the SOEs when markets are competitive, when it will make some of the firms become more efficient down the road. The policies on the SOEs has also need to be consistent with the macro fiscal policies, such as some of the broad policy uh, perspectives would be fitting into the public sector uh, angle so that um, some of the works, such as in the New Zealand, they can be put under the broad public sector perspective to consider what is the role of the SOEs. Uh, fiscal targets will also be important to consider so as to cons uh, make use of the SOEs to generate uh, reasonable returns, even though uh, making profits may not be the uh, key priorities of the SOEs. Getting the incentives right is important. This will include the pricing policies and regulations. In the fund, we also discusses the importance of strengthening the institutions, including transparency, oversight of SOEs, and the disclosures of all the financials between the SOEs as well as the general government. Here on the right chart, you can see that we have done some empirical uh, work using the lawful database from the IMF programs to study the impact of the reforms. 
This chart reflects the results across sectors, including mining, utilities, as well as different sectors. So let's look at the transport sector, the third category from the left. The chart shows that the percent of productivity improvement when considering different types of reforms, for instance, the green for governance reform, the blue for the pricing reform, and for all reforms, it is uh, uh, labeled in red. So all three bars in the transport sectors are solid, meaning that the indicated improvement in the productivity was significant uh, at 1% level. And for governance and pricing reform, it could improve about uh, 14 to 15% of productivity gains. Uh, the improvement in all reforms is slightly less, partly because other aspects of reform, such as arrears occurrence of the SOEs, uh, may not have direct impact on the productivity, although they would improve the liquidity of SOEs as well as uh, provide and uh, create a better situations for the private sector as a whole. So maybe I will stop here, and then my colleagues, Maddie, will go through some of the fiscal policies after the great lockdown. Excellent. Uh, Maddie, uh, we turn to you now. Just please be mindful of the time. We want to leave uh, also time for questions. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much for uh, for the opportunity. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Uh, so I'd like to talk about uh, fiscal policies for after the great lockdown, or this is going to be a, a gradual transition. So in the in the meantime, also, um, Rafael mentioned some of the the trends, the global trends. Uh, and uh, when we look at the literature to understand the underlying explanations for these global trends. Um, two strands of literature come to mind. One is the prolonged stagnation uh, literature, and the other one is debt supercycle. And debt supercycle is the persistent increase in leverage throughout the economy, different uh, different sectors. So on the, on the prolonged stagnation part, uh, uh, on the demand side, uh, reasons include aging populations, uh, uh, globalization and, and, and the desire for safe assets and income inequality, rising income inequality, which is, uh, which is an important, uh, important area. And also um, on the supply side, uh, uh, the literature talks about uh, lowering productivity growth, uh, a very weak capital accumulation, especially in advanced countries, but also in emerging markets uh, since 2013. And the shrinking labor force uh, in advance and and uh, and large EMs. So these are some of the reasons why growth uh, has been weak, and, and some of the other trends that we have observed. And also on the debt uh, side, uh, can think about the financial boom that preceded the Great Recession. It it came to a halt, an abrupt halt, uh, and then left many countries with uh, with balance sheet vulnerabilities. And, uh, and also you can think about uh, uh, cre continued credit expansion in China. Um, so given these, uh, these explanations, what is the role of fiscal policy? What can it do to, uh, uh, to um, help increase growth in, in a sustained manner? Here we, we, we think uh, um, we present a, a framework for um, responding to this weaker growth. We call it ideas, as Kathy mentioned uh, at the very beginning. The first layer is investing for the future 
uh, and uh, especially in, in a very low interest rate environment. The, but the key question is, how can policymakers make the most out of public investment given high public debt levels? When we um, look at the literature, uh, we, we observe that uh, investment needs are massive. Uh, we are talking about 1.3% of GDP per year or on a cumulative basis, uh, $20 trillion over the next two decades. This consists of uh, about half a percent of GDP per year of investment to cover infrastructure gaps, uh, mostly on transportation. Uh, this also covers the need for, uh, for meeting SDG uh, uh, goals of different, different countries. That's another 0.2% of GDP per year. And also, very importantly, to mitigate climate change, uh, we need an additional 0.6% of GDP in low-carbon investment uh, in the energy, energy sector. So um, most of these uh, needs are concentrated in uh, emerging markets and developing economies. Uh, Let's see what, uh, what we can, um, if, if governments were to accommodate these uh, investment needs, uh, what would be the macro impacts of them? We rely on a couple of in-house models to analyze the impact on growth, inflation, real interest rates, and also public debt of meeting these global investment needs. We assume a persistent public investment by the government, 1.3% uh, of GDP initially, and then it gradually declines after 20 years, it reaches 0.6% of GDP. The cumulative size of the injection is 18% of GDP. We simulate the macro effects of, uh, of this public investment push and also discuss a very important issue, the role of investment inefficiencies, uh, which they lower the extent of public capital accumulation. Think about uh, time delays in, in projects, cost overruns, governance problems, etc. Uh, as a result of these, globally, when we look across countries, we see that about 16 to 44 percent of uh, uh, public investment goes into waste. So, what can we, uh, what can uh, governments do about that? Um, assuming that investment is efficient. Uh, uh, public investment, and, and the chart, you, you can see that, public investment could give a boost to output by about 1.5% per year on average over two decades. So think about 30% increase in the level of GDP by the end of the, the projection horizon. Uh, it generates about 60 basis points inflation on, uh, on average after two years, which dissipates over time as the supply potential of the economy expands. And the impact on public debt is rather modest. Uh, however, if these strong macro effects in the baseline uh, would be much weaker if supply side rigidities uh, uh, by, by that, which could lead to lower investment efficiency. They constrain capital accumulation. So relative to the baseline uh, in the charts, uh, we get only one third of the boost to GDP. We get higher um, um, inflation over time, and then we get significant debt, uh, um, debt increases. So, so this is an area uh, which is of very 
very much importance. Um, the second pillar of the ideas approach is preparing discretionary measures. And here, um, when we look at the discretionary measures in the past, um, just abstracting from the response to COVID-19 for, uh, for a second, we see that discretionary responses usually uh, came too little, too late, and were not at times targeted. So um, we know that in the, in the context of COVID, as Rafael mentioned, governments have already provided significantly, significant uh, emergency lifelines to people and firms, and it's, uh, it, it was timely. Um, but thinking about the recovery phase, um, um, the, the first and, and, and most important thing is to uh, is to rehire workers after the pandemic abates. Uh, so co governments uh, in this respect can plan temporarily, uh, temporary payroll tax cuts uh, to encourage firms to hire workers. To get people to spend, uh, governments can use time-bound value-added tax reductions or consumption vouchers. Um, smaller investment projects can also be accelerated and more broadly um, to deal with future pandemics, to deal with future shocks, countries can legislate in advance measures that would be automatically activated in downturns. Uh, think about a form of rules-based fiscal activism. Um, and the third uh, pillar here is enhancing automatic stabilizers. Automatic stabilizers, uh, Think about progressive income taxes, unemployment benefits, social safety net programs. These are sizable and these are timely because they coincide uh, coincided well with previous recessions and we have ex experienced that uh, today. Um, can we enhance them permanently? This is the question that, uh, that we would like to ask. And the answer is uh, yes. And most importantly, the unemployment benefits system and social safety net programs. Um, if you look at the chart here, uh, you can see that a significant portion of the loss in aggregate consumption after an unemployment shock or income shock is restored by countries' tax benefit systems. For example, um, consider the case of Denmark. Um, if aggregate consumption falls by 1%, the tax benefit system in Denmark restores over one-third of the loss, while that of Italy restores only 10% of the loss. So um, there's room for improvement, uh, especially the so social safety net. What, 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 is the, what are the good attributes of uh, uh, a good social safety net? Here, we can think about the safety net providing broad coverage and adequate benefits in a progressive way so that the, the poor get more of the, the benefits. Uh, preserve work incentives uh, and help beneficiaries find jobs, obtain health care, attend education and training. And um, try to be simple, uh, avoiding a fragmented, complex web of social assistance programs that end up being very costly to run and not benefiting people in a fair way. This should be, should be avoided. Finally, um, against these yardsticks, 
social safety nets in many countries can be improved. In emerging markets and developing countries, there are significant gaps in terms of coverage and coverage of the low-income groups and also the benefit levels, the generosity. On average, they cover less than one-fifth of the poorest quintile of households. And the average transfer amount is 13% of the consumption of bottom 20%. For advanced countries, the problems are of a different nature. They have better developed safety nets. So concerns relate to improving the outcomes of existing programs, expanding coverage based on enhanced means testing and better uh, preserving work incentives. Uh, here, uh, a guaranteed minimum income or a two-pillar unemployment benefit system would be beneficial. I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mary. Uh, that was a beautiful compliment to, to uh, the previous presentation and uh, looking forward. So I'm uh, turning now to Simeon uh, from LSE, uh, academics, but also a, a lead politician in a similarly challenging era. Simeon, the future for is yours. Thank you, Piroshka. Indeed, uh, the last crisis, the Eurozone crisis, was uh, similar in magnitude in some countries. Um, there was some uh, uncertainty, uh, but not anywhere near the uncertainty that we are facing now um, as to the length of, uh, of this current uh, crisis. So I'd like to make three points. Uh, the first one, indeed, is uh, on uh, the uncertainties that we face. It is indeed uh, a positive sign that a number of the countries that uh, had difficulties early on with the uh, pandemic are now coming out of lockdowns, uh, instituting some um, still safe uh, social distancing measures, but you can see uh, life returning to maybe not to normal, but to some semblance of, uh, of uh, normality. Um, but we should say, however, in, that in this normality, there are at least two large uncertainties as regards money that we, will, we as governments will have to spend in the future. One of it uh, is uh, cross-sectoral. So we know that some sectors are not going to recover quickly, even if the rest of the economy recovers, even if the pandemic is uh, hopefully behind us soon. Uh, various uh, uh, studies, there are a number of uh, previous episodes that we can draw on that say it's probably right that the tourist sector for some time in the future is not going to be the same as it was before. People are going to travel less, so transport is going to be uh, different. We know also from the latest data, but also from previous crises, that the uncertainty of incomes makes people consume bulky large pro products less. So we've seen this in numbers on furniture, for example, uh, numbers on car uh, manufacturing and uh, sales and so on. So a number of sectors will need not just continue, but new forms of government assistance. And this is really across the world, uh, because just as we worry about uh, uh, tourism in beautiful Croatia. We also worry about uh, tourism in a number of uh, developing countries, and actually some small countries depend a lot on tourist receipts, for example. Um, so the uncertainty will bring us new instruments, I predict, not just more of the same amounts of money that we're spending, but uh, new ways to finance uh, uh, sectors, which really we have not yet done, uh, with the exception of some very large businesses like in the 
uh, airline industry and so on, we have not seen uh, countries do sectoral uh, support yet. And I predict we will be seeing this in the future and it will differ across countries depending on what their uh, main sectors are. The second point uh, uh, to make is that some of the forms of assistance where large fiscal resources have been spent, uh, payroll support was mentioned, various furlough schemes, the Kurzarbeit um, that Germany uh, established in the previous uh, uh, crisis and now is used quite uh, a lot around the world, uh, has been tremendous and some countries are continuing it for some time. But you quickly, as the economy opens or reopens in some sectors, you face a different issue, which is we have supported firms uh, for the last three, four months, primarily through supporting jobs, job retention, which was the right policy then. But what if the firm opens and finds out that because of this uncertain demand or because of how uh, their financial situation was even pre-crisis, they actually cannot survive. And my prediction is that in a number of countries, advanced as well as developing economies, there are going to be many, many firms that were anyhow on the brink probably of survival, and now they were pushed beyond this uh, brink. This brings different instruments and different government policies, or should bring, because we no longer can depend, for example, on payroll uh, support, since even if you give 100% uh, wage uh, support to the business itself, it's just not viable. So how to make as many business to survive this, uh, this uh, next uh, recovery phase is a topic that a number of us have thought about, uh, but clearly some additional and perhaps different uh, types of fiscal resources will need to go into this uh, recovery phase on the survival of companies, not just jobs, but the survival of companies. And my last point, uh, uh, Piroshka, is uh, again medium and long term, is that as we think of the survival of, uh, of companies and the fact that some are not going to survive, and as, as we also think about the uncertainty of uh, personal incomes uh, because of the jobs uh, that, we, that we just uh, uh, discussed and the uncertainty around that, you also need to start thinking about what the next tax system is going to be. Because in this crisis, and the speakers also mentioned that we would temporarily like to defer corporate income taxes, we would temporarily like to, to provide payroll support with grants and, and so on, but this costs money. And we've already spent a lot of money. The IMF team showed, uh, showed very nice graphs on this. We're going to continue spending money on, uh, on this. But eventually, the tax system needs to adjust. We cannot just keep uh, piling, uh, piling uh, debts. Some countries are starting to think about this, uh, and I'll finish with this uh, thought. And it is the general direction, actually, that Europe has taken after the last crisis can be a lesson for everybody else, is that you essentially have a shift from um, direct taxes, corporate income tax, personal income tax, to indirect taxes, VAT, excise taxes, environmental taxes in developing countries that depend a lot on natural resources, oil-related uh, uh, taxes that depend less on this issue that I mentioned, uh, uncertainty of personal incomes and survival of firms. I think this is a direction that we will see in the near future, not immediately, but uh, in the next few months, because we do have to spend a lot, as Catherine uh, started by uh, saying, and governments have done that, but we also need to think about the stability of public finances in the year to come. 
And I think this discussion is coming with, uh, with your panel, Hiroshka. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Simeon. Uh, the questions are coming in and, and uh, quite a few of those uh, actually touch upon the points that uh, you have just raised. So um, I will be turning them to you in due course. But uh, before doing that, going to the questions, uh, we will have still uh, one uh, excellent speaker, Joka Kochan uh, from the EBRD. Joka, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, let me share my screen as well. I would like to talk about fiscal policy in the context of individuals' willingness to take risks or um, if you look at it in reverse, the demand for socializing risks. And this is based on joint work with Philip Etzold and Alexander Plekanov also at the EBRD. So in recent years, we've seen a trend with risk being increasingly shifted onto individuals. If you think of the gig economy, zero-hour contracts, decline in state pensions, and often these risks were shifted onto individuals who dislike them the most. Now, we expect that the economic effects of the current crisis will disproportionately impact low-income groups. They are less likely to have permanent contracts. They are more likely to work for small and medium-sized enterprises and vulnerable sectors such as retail or tourism. They are more likely to be self-employed or to work in the informal economy in emerging markets and developing economies. So overall, they're more likely to face job losses, and they're also often more difficult for governments to support and find with targeted measures. Low-income groups also dislike risk more, um, whichever way the causality may run. So in the chart on the left, you can see that risk tolerance generally increases with income. But this pattern is even more pronounced if we zoom in on people who say that they are unwilling to take any risks. Um, so if you look at the blue bars here, you can see that in the countries where the EBRD operates, these are mostly middle-income countries in Europe, Central Asia, and the southern and eastern Mediterranean, about 30% of respondents in the bottom income decile said that they are unwilling to take risks at all. Now, risk, of course, very much come to the forefront of the current crisis. But even more generally, we see that people who are risk averse are more likely to be employed in the public sector, including in state-owned enterprises. This chart shows you for each level of risk tolerance, from those not willing to take risks at all on the left of the chart to those who say they are very willing to take risks, whether they are more likely to work in the public sector or in a state-owned enterprise um, than the average in the country in which they live. And you can see that the left of the chart, that those who are more risk-averse, who are less willing to take risks, are more likely to work in the public sector or in a state-owned enterprise. And this holds up even when controlling for individual characteristics. We see a very similar pattern if we look at country-level data instead of um, at the individual's. Here again, we see that higher levels of risk aversion correlate with higher shares of public sector employment, higher shares of employment in state-owned enterprises as well. So you can see countries towards the top right of the scatter will have higher shares of the population that say they are unwilling to take any risks, but also higher shares public sector employment. Now, as, of course, risks become very prominent in the context of the current crisis, and we see increasing demand for socializing risks, 
Um, this raises the question, um, this raises demand for the state to step in, either directly as an employer, but also more broadly as insurance, as investment. And this raises questions about countries' ability to afford this higher level of state involvement that is demanded. But it also raises a question whether states have the administrative capacity in very practical terms to deliver the sort of targeted support that is expected. Looking first at ability to afford this, um, as we already heard from Rafael, interest rates are at historically low levels. And indeed, for many countries, fiscal constraints may be, at least for now, less binding um, than they were in previous crises, although circumstances, of course, vary widely. So here you can see a bunch of countries clustered below the 45-degree line. Than it has years. However, for many countries, administrative constraints may actually be more binding than fiscal constraints. And this sketcher is very much inspired by a very nice chart from the Fiscal Monitor, which tried to outline countries' policy options depending on the amount of fiscal space they have available, but also depending on the level of administrative capacity in the country to provide targeted support. We try to operationalize this by constructing an index of fiscal space and an index of administrative capacity to try to plot where countries stand in terms of policy options available to them. So for the index of fiscal space, we take into account how much debt the country already has, um, government revenues, government balance, and existing interest payments. Well, for administrative capacity, we look at a measure of e-government, but also the World Bank doing business indicators, the worldwide governance indicators of regulatory quality and government effectiveness. The dots in blue to the right of this chart are advanced economies, where you can see that they tend to have fairly high levels of administrative capacity. Um, but there's quite a bit of variation in how much fiscal space is available to these countries. If you turn to the other side of the chart, you can see the green dots. These would be low-income countries, typically lower levels of administrative capacity. Um, so these here for these countries, as well as for some middle-income economies, administrative capacity constraints may be more binding and definitely more so in the short term. Now, fiscal constraints and administrative capacity um, have shaped policy responses. And in the next chart, we look at some of the early policy measures that have been adopted by the countries where the EBRD operates. So again, mostly middle-income countries in Europe, Central Asia, and the Southern and Eastern Mediterranean. Here we plot the share of countries that have implemented various measures. You already heard about some of these, such as um, payment holidays on loans, which were very common, as you can see in the yellow bar here to the right. Um, we've seen that a lot of countries allowed for taxes or social security contributions to be deferred. Some countries with higher levels of administrative capacity, for instance, in Central Europe or in Southeastern Europe, introduced wage subsidies, often conditional on maintaining employment, or introduced measures that were specifically targeting vulnerable groups, such as the self-employed. 
However, we noticed that in a number of countries where EBRD operates, we also saw different, perhaps um, less specifically targeted measures, such as increasing support for pensioners who may be less affected by the economic impact of the pandemic. However, this was a pre-existing channel, which was easier for governments to rely on to provide stimulus. We've also seen some second best measures, um, for instance, temporary controls on prices, controlling the prices of basic goods. Um, these were introduced in a number of economies with more limited administrative capacity, for instance, in Central Asia, the Caucasus, or some of the poorer economies of the Western Balkans. Now, these price controls, while distortionary, were a means of maintaining the purchasing power of lower income households in a context where administrative capacity may not be there to quickly provide support that is targeted specifically at those most vulnerable to the effects of the crisis. So for countries where administrative capacity tends to be the binding constraint, um, there could be scope for building crisis response tools for the future. For instance, setting up a centralized payment registry that would allow for better targeting of support once the next crisis hits. And then if I can just end on a more general note and a little bit of advertising um, for fiscal stimulus to be effective would need to be accompanied by increasing private sector confidence. Now, of course, this is especially important for investment, which is most sensitive to uncertainty. So here there's the scope for governments to step in, not just as employers and as providing insurance, but also as investments. This could be an opportunity to um, invest more in green um, investments they defined. This could be an opportunity for tilting to green. And this is something that our upcoming transition report that will come out in November will say a lot more about alongside the changing role of the state in the context of the current crisis. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Joka, and all the panel speakers. Without further ado, let's now get down to the questions. Uh, we have uh, quite a few flowing in, in reaction also uh, to what you're saying, and in general, very good questions. Um, let me start out uh, uh, with Maximilian Munroz. Um, he's a student from Scotland, and he's asking um, a very pertinent questions. You have a huge fiscal stimulus. A lot of plans for big uh, public sector investment. Normally, these come with inefficiency risks, risk of wasting resources, and I would add also corruption risks. So the question is, what if you were to single out a couple of few, fact, a few factors which would ensure to minimize these risks of inefficiency, waste, and, and, and I'm adding corruption? In, in the context of these huge uh, humus, uh, stimulus packages and the uh, investment projects. Um, who would like, Catherine and uh, Simone, I thought uh, maybe both of you, if you could address these questions. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Poroshka. Um, so I'll start. Um, so we have lots of work that we've been doing with countries on how to improve their overall public investment management uh, processes. And I think that's really the key starting point because we, we've talked about how you know, it's important to start to prepare investment projects early. 
which would mean, you know, starting to get uh, in projects that could be implemented soon. But you don't want to just pick on projects without the overall management of the process to make sure that you're getting good projects. So that's the whole institutional um, uh, setup of ensuring projects are well selected, that they're well uh, monitored, that they're evaluated, um, that you have good relations between coordination between various levels of government, um, that you ensure that public procurement is done well um, so that you minimize those uh, corruption risks. I'd start there. Thank you, um, Simeon. Yeah, so Piroshka, like the previous crisis uh, and maybe the previous two or three crises where a way out uh, in terms of fiscal uh, support was to um, help with large public projects or so infrastructure projects and so on. I think this crisis is somewhat different um, in that a lot of the support is going to hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of firms. Uh, and we've seen this for the payroll support that we mentioned, job retention schemes where they are going to individuals, there the risk of corruption is very small or non-existent. Uh, you can over time then argue who are we supporting, which sectors and which uh, firms, so that was my first point earlier. And I think we're getting very quickly to that point. So we'll be spending a lar large public resources some some uh, industries that are used to this type of support, airline industry, for example, comes very quickly first and says we want money, and they get money, uh, or large uh, large uh, car companies and so on. And I think one very legitimate question is um, that uh, I see a few people in the uh, question queue have asked: Are we supporting old industries, or we should should we actually think of new industries? Because as we know from Schumpeter and so on, the idea of creative destruction is that this is also an opportunity to see which sectors are actually efficient and which are not, and which firms are efficient and which firms are not. That was not possible so far. So far, we needed to support every worker and every company. But in the future, neither can we support that financially because no government is so rich. No, I think it is the efficient way to go. And which is why we very, very soon in the next weeks, literally, we need to think which sectors are the sectors of the future and we should be supporting and which sectors we should basically let uh, try on their own. And if they don't survive, we're reasonably sure because they're competitive that new firms, new ideas will come, uh, come into that. Because no matter how rich some countries are, they're not going to be able to support everybody in this next uh, recovery, uh, recovery period. So I think it's not so much about corruption and uh, inefficiency. It's this question of we went through the initial period. Some countries are still going through this initial period. As recovery starts, where do we focus and with what instruments? And I think once we select the right instruments, inefficiency and corruption will kind of be limited uh, that way. Yeah, thank you very much. That's a very hopeful, uh, hopeful uh, take on this. Um, I have heard some country examples without naming names where the procurement uh, process was in the name of, you know, for the sake of time, uh, allegedly, uh, has been um, circumvented. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, the perception is that there might be um, 
ulterior uh, motives behind it. But let's hope, as you say, that this will be less of a case uh, this time around. Um, let, me stay with, let me stay with you, uh, Simon, because you picked up uh, one of the uh, questions, and I think you answered it, but many, many economists, and this is uh, coming actually uh, from a uh, former LSCPH student of uh, ours, uh, Tabi Leoka from Johannesburg. And um, the question is, state-owned enterprises often are ailing anyways. Often they are, they are in yeah. state hands because they are, for one reason or another, um, they do not really um, uh, organize along the profit, uh, profit motives. Um, so is there a, some kind of a guidance um, as to which state-owned enterprise to help and whether, whether there is an ailing state-owned enterprise but actually perform some additional uh, goals which would require support and in what sector is there, there is a question you know should we support agriculture for example given the food security that comes up mm. as a self-insurance uh, mechanism so the question to you and and uh, maybe to imf colleagues katrine or uh, rafael mandy mm -hmm. so i think one trend that we're already seeing in many countries around the world and we are sure to see in the next few months is that the role of state-owned enterprise is going to increase tremendously existing state-owned enterprises, but also uh, companies that cannot on their own survive. And for one reason or another, the state decides that they are strategic and basically nationalizes them. And this doesn't have to be like an outright nationalization. It can just naturally happen through financing packages because if yeah. the government spends a lot of money uh, supporting a particular company and becomes the majority uh, shareholder in this process, then they are the uh, majority shareholder. So there is nothing sinister about that particular act of helping uh, helping uh, these uh, companies. But once that happens, as we know from uh, history and from research, both in our own region in Eastern Europe, but re really around the world, Latin America, Africa, and uh, and so on, state-owned enterprises are not functioning in the way that profit maximization, the way that we understand it in the private sector, operates. So they quickly become uh, conduits or channels, not just for um, economic state policy, but also just for politics. So we know from research that state-owned enterprises uh, or, or workers in state-owned enterprises uh, vote, let's say, differently from the general public, much more in favor of incumbents. Why? Well, because they're beholden by uh, them. So a very large share of state-owned enterprise resurgence, uh, uh, maybe in the short run, helps us as conduits of these instruments that we've been discussing because they can reach easily, for example, subcontractors, small firms that otherwise we cannot reach for support easily. But we again, very soon, this is why I was saying about next instruments are in order. We need to think what are the instruments to support the governance mechanism of these state-owned enterprises? And actually, what is the exit mechanism of governance? Because in, in the private sector, in private equity, you always worry about exit. So what do you do once the company has... Um, uh, has been uh, recovered and is operating well. With state-owned enterprises, this is a lot more difficult, but a number of countries, and I'll finish with that, Portugal, the United Kingdom, um, uh, have these recovery funds where the state temporarily takes, if needed, uh, equity stakes, but there is a very clear me mechanism of who runs it and then when the exit uh, uh, takes place. So I think that's uh, my prediction is one of the next fiscal monitors of the IMF will be covering that theme because it's a huge theme for all of us.
Thank you. Catherine? Yeah, so I, I very much agree with Simeon that, that we're going to see uh, the increased role of state-owned enterprises because of governments uh, getting involved, uh, equity injections, takeovers, like we've seen in uh, previous crises. They're also going to be more important because they provide uh, very needed public services and water, electricity, state-owned banks, uh, development banks are able to get to uh, firms in uh, medium, small, micro uh, farmers, et cetera, that often the, the private sector doesn't get to. Um, they're going to be important probably in the recovery. Uh, so people are talking about the need for a green recovery. State-owned enterprises are very important in the power sector. Uh, and so to the extent that they can shift their portfolios then from uh, brown to green, this will help in, in a in a green recovery. But we need those governance mechanisms then um, as uh, discussed, you know, right now their state-owned enterprises are very important, um, but their productivity tends to be lower than, um, um, than private enterprises. That depends on lots of things, particularly the institutional setting. We found that uh, uh, state-owned enterprises that in countries that have uh, are, uh, very high levels of perceived corruption, then that productivity difference is much larger than in countries where the uh, control of corruption um, is, is much better. Um, so um, improving then transparency really um, is, is key, as, as Raphael had, had discussed, financial disclosures. Um, the public sector knowing who they have and whether the rationale for, for those uh, still makes sense um, and good corporate governance um, and uh, control and oversight. Those will be important, have been important and they'll continue to be important with this increasing role of, of state-owned enterprises. Thank you very much. Uh, just to finish perhaps this uh, group of questions, uh, there has been a question from Fade Boskurk from Turkey and complimenting it from Eleanor Charles from Switzerland, um, asking about the right size of government. Of course, that's the, <laughs> I don't know how many trillion dollar question. Um, uh, what is the right size of government post-COVID? Because as, as you, you just, both of you, um, Simon and, and Katrin mentioned, there are new rules. Um, uh, maybe healthcare has to be reformed and with more uh, private uh, public participation in, in some countries. Um, particularly in the, the Americas. Um, but at the same time, as Eleanor uh, stresses, uh, there are concerns about crowding out in the end. And, and we heard uh, some safety mechanism already mentioned. Uh, Joka mentioned uh, the right incentives and, uh, and, uh, and the like. Uh, you, um, uh, Simeon, you highlighted already the sunset clause, the exit strategy, so to speak. So you partially answered this question, but maybe let me put it like this. How worried would should are you today that the private sector, which should be uh, operated on a market basis, will be crowded out because of pressure lobbying uh, of, of certain constituencies for more and more government? And that I would like to ask uh, everybody, in fact, because I think it's a very big question. You can have a very short answer. So maybe I start with Joka. 
Joka uh, from EBRD, uh, uh, the bank that really uh, has overseen and supported the transformation from pure state planning, uh, state economy toward the market-based uh, uh, economy. Uh, how you see the, the risks in, 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 in the EBRD region, in Eastern Northern and the MENA Central Asia region? Um, so I think I would start maybe with a more general point on the size of the state. I think countries may end up at very different points in the spectrum of how large a state the population demands. I think this is one of those areas where people's preferences and in particular preferences towards risk and return and the trade-off between them may end up with um, very different trade-offs in different countries. I think it would be possible that we might see an even larger role in the state in continental Europe and a shrinking role in for instance the US and that these differences will become exacerbated by the current crisis. Um, now, on the size of the state in general, we've seen a secularly increasing trend in many cases. We've also seen that it tends to increase after um, cyclically after crises, as we've seen in past crises, as people's um, risk aversion may change as well, and they may demand more state to step in. Um, so I think I will leave it at that and hand over to colleagues. Thank you very much, uh, Simon. I think As a former say, former deputy prime minister and finance minister, where do you see the pressure? We're going to see a lot more state, uh, both directly through through fiscal support, as we already have seen. But I think that will continue this year. That will continue next year. For some countries, probably even the year the year after, uh, because as I said, the recovery has many many uncertainties, um, and this is even excluding the more. Uh, medically related topic of is there's going to be a second wave. We've seen some countries in our region, North Macedonia, for example, that opened up and then had to close within a week uh, and now has an explosion of uh, cases. So we know of several countries like that uh, around the world, which creates yet another set of, uh, of health as well as fiscal problems. But even if we assume that we're going to deal with the uh, pandemic, there's going to be directly more state in how they the state finances firms and sectors and jobs. And then some of these firms would need to be uh, somehow uh, kept alive for social reasons or for uh, just as transmitters of social policies. And therefore, we'll see much more state-owned uh, enterprise. I think this is inevitable and we should not resist it. We should just try to be as efficient as possible about how uh, the governance uh, of it is run and also think of uh, exit mechanisms, as you mentioned, Piroshka, from the start, which a few countries are already doing in uh, Europe, in other parts of the world. So we have the good, uh, the good examples. Once we get to the exit, we've seen uh, in many regions in the world how difficult that is because mm -hmm. politics then plays a very large role. These enterprises are typically large, so they, so they have lots of workers. These workers, um, uh, um, often are used for political reasons, not because they want to, but because of the way that state-owned enterprises are run. So this is going to be a difficult decade, two-decade-long process. This is not going to be two, three years, and then we're back to uh, normal. And I'll again say that we actually don't know what normal is, because some sectors are for sure going to be very different in two to three years than they are uh, 
than they are now. Some of this is already written, how tourism is going to be, for example, mass tourism and so on. But there are many other sectors that we don't think of now that are going to uh, go through quite transformative uh, change. And that may be good, but the transition is going to be painful. Thank you very much. Um, any thoughts from IMF colleagues, uh, Catherine, uh, on the size of government, or uh, should, should I give you another question? Yeah, no, just on that, um, yeah, so I, I wanted to pick up too on the, on the uncertainty about the structure of the economy and what that's going to mean, because yeah, as Simon was mentioned, we, we, we are anticipating sectoral uh, changes given the structure of demand and, um, and developments, but we don't know. And so governments then have to decide how much to continue supporting you know, existing firms um, or to let those go and there are the costs of, of, of that, not just the, the cost for the workers, but the cost that those firms um, have built up relationships with their, with their clients, with governments, um, all of that uh, capital. Uh, and so we've also started to think then about some of the trade-offs there and those are going to depend, you know, on what are the, what are going to, what would be the costs of misallocation if you don't uh, facilitate that kind of, of misallocation, but um, you, you don't know exactly what the, what the structure is going to be. But then there's a trade-off too, because, you know, uh, workers moving to different sectors, there are costs then of those moves. Um, and without active labor market policies or job retraining, then that then those kinds of costs are also very high. So you really have to balance that, I think, in, in deciding how much uh, to provide, you know, wage subsidies or continue different types of policies. Um, and the uh, as, as mentioned, then we're going to continue to see this, this uh, increasing role. Governments have to think smartly, you know, how, who to support, how to do it in strategic sectors, how to do it transparently, um, and what, um, how to manage while they're, they're there, and, and uh, in some cases, how to, how to exit. Okay. Excellent. Um, a question about now emerging uh, markets, emerging market economies in general. Uh, this is uh, from Jordan Isak uh, uh, in Singapore. Um, and there are related questions uh, in, in other regions. So the question uh, of, of Jordan is, uh, emerging markets obviously have uh, less fiscal room. We, we have heard it from various presentations, although I recall Joka highlighted that administrative capacity actually can be a, a just as a binding, if not bigger binding constraint when it comes to executing a big policy. But there is less fiscal room in general. Um, uh, that's the uh, perception. So what are the single most important things emerging markets should focus on when deciding about the allocation of scarce resources? Who would like to take that? I see Rafael uh, Edgy. Yeah, I could. I could uh, maybe Thank give you. some thoughts on that and then other, other speakers are uh, welcome to contribute a little bit more. Uh, from the perspective of the emerging markets, certainly one key feature that we have seen is that many countries are facing limited fiscal space due to their already uh, high debt level. And at the same time, the social safety nets may not be as strong as those in the advanced economies. 
So in that context, I mean, uh, certainly one is to find those measures that have a high impact that could protect people and firms at the same time. From the country fiscal measures that we have uh, been able to keep track, that's why one of the reasons that emerging markets do not seem to provide significant liquidity support, partly because of the limited fiscal space. To, to, to provide uh, additional support to protect people, one could think of those policymakers in the emerging markets can make use of the existing mechanisms, let's say on the social transfer, for instance, Brazil has appropriately expanded some of the coverage of their uh, roadster and media programs, which is a social transfer programs to uh, extend the coverage to 1 billion families. Similar in Indonesia, Egypt, and uh, Russia, we also see that there is an expansion of those uh, social safety nets to a various extent. So making use of existing mechanism is important. Second is about the targeting. Uh, for some countries, given there's limited fiscal space, it is important to transfer uh, or help those that are uh, most needed, either as households or firms. So choosing the right targeting measures will be important. However, there's also some constraints that one needs to be mindful of. For instance, the social safety net may not be very good in terms of targeting among emerging markets. So in those circumstances, in-kind provision of goods, making use of the new digital methods uh, to do the tra cash transfers or even local communities or local governments can be able to provide the necessary targeted support. Uh, maybe I will stop here and then other speakers are welcome to join. Uh, Simone, did you have a thought or... Um I think we discussed this, the difference between advanced economies and uh, developing economies, which is where many of the questions mm -hmm. are. We mm -hmm. discussed the limited fiscal space. Uh, also, I should say not just limited fiscal space now, but the cost of future borrowings, because advanced economies, as our MF colleague showed, uh, basically are facing close to zero interest rates now. And it seems like in the near future, that would be the case uh, too. So uh, further borrowing is also is also cheap. That's not the case for uh, developing uh, economies. So that's one difference. Second difference that we have not, however, discussed yet is the size of the informal sector. So most developing economies have fairly large, even middle-income countries like Brazil was uh, just mentioned, have fairly large uh, informal sector. So when you think of mechanisms and if you think of where to spend your limited uh, uh, resources. Some of it is just efficiency, which sectors and which firms can survive, which we already have spoken about. But the other one, which is much more acute in developing countries, is how do you support the population? And then this type of retention schemes, job retention schemes that we've been discussing that I think work quite well in advanced economies, they actually don't work well in developing economies simply because such a large part of the population is in informal businesses. So you don't actually have a mechanism to reach them. You may have a financial mechanism through online banking and so on, but they don't exist on the books of the you know, tax ministry, the finance ministry, uh, or the social ministry, and so on. So I think it becomes quite important that a large portion in developing countries of this uh, limited fiscal resources do not just approach the firms and how the firms survive the business sector, but also think of this very poor and the informal firms also where most of the uh, not well-to-do uh, people people are. 
And this is what I was mentioning before. This requires different mechanisms. You cannot just say through tax payments, this is the firm pay all of its uh, workers. You somehow need to go through uh, extended social programs, as Rafael just uh, mentioned, through cash transfers and so on. Uh, but let me make my last point here. Most of the cash transfer schemes that the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank and so on have actually rural. It's mostly about rural workers. So if you look at uh, where these mm -hmm. programs have uh, success, it mostly has to do with um, rural businesses and rural workers. This crisis has disproportionately hit the poor urban population just because of social distances, lockdowns and so on. So we need quite a different method. I don't know yet uh, what it is, but quite a different method to reach these vulnerable urban uh, populations. Thank you very much, Simon. Maybe I, um, I link um, another question in this area um, um, up here. Um, uh, Barak Singh Tapa from Nepal is asking uh, partic particularly about low-income countries, and then I think uh, your answer, uh, Simon, has covered that. He raises one particular factor, and I know that this is an imp uh, the, the, uh, this is a, a, a big question in in many countries where uh, which rely on this particular source of, uh, of, of 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 income remittances. So the outlook for remittances in in countries such as Nepal and and others, of course, uh, in 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 many parts of the of the world. Um, uh, remittances used to be counter-cyclical, but now we have a synchronized uh, global shock. Um, uh, what are the expectations and how you see uh, that, uh, that particular um, source of income uh, evolving? Um, IMF colleagues, uh, perhaps, uh, Catherine? Maybe, Med maybe Medi wants to take this okay, one. Okay, Medi. Medi, absolutely. Thank you. Sure. Uh... So uh, clearly, remittances will 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 fall uh, because of, as, as you mentioned, uh, Piroshka, the global nature of the shock, which 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 hits most countries at the same time. I mean, especially in the second quarter of uh, of 2020. Uh, so remittances will fall, and it, it will have implications for um, uh, for. Um, um, many countries. We, we have to wait a little bit and see the, the actual data. An example is the, the case of Mexico, where remittances have held up uh, relatively well and with, uh, with, uh, um, with uh, the jobs report that, that we have recently seen in the case of the U.S., uh, there is some good, uh, a good indication, good signs that uh, that uh, maybe the the negative impact is not as large as uh, the, the we think. But but clearly that that's an important area, and also in in, in MENA region, that's uh, that's also uh, mm -hmm. a region where they rely on remittances, and remittances are linked to oil prices and commodity prices have fallen significantly. So that's, uh, that's, um, that's another uh, source where, uh, source of shock where uh, um, uh, linked to commodity prices, basically. So I'll stop here. And just think, if, if I may be Roshko, yes, yes, absolutely. It, it relates to my previous comment. These are precisely the people who are not covered by uh, any social programs either in their country or in the country that uh, that they have uh, been uh, working. And uh, yes, there are some uh, not too negative, I would say, news from uh, Mexico, but we actually do have some data from Central Asia, the Kyrgyz Republic, for example, that relies a lot on remittances in Russia and partly because of the delayed and 
it seems prolonged uh, 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 pandemic response in uh, in Russia. Remittances there seem to have really fallen off a, a cliff. I mean, about uh, the Kyrgyz Republic. Um, we have in the MENA region countries like Lebanon that depend a lot. Well, Nepal itself also depends a lot on remittances from uh, the Gulf uh, states. And as Maggie mentioned, is not just COVID. It's also the falling uh, oil prices that uh, suddenly uh, these countries, this fairly well-off countries uh, in uh, in the Gulf have uh, substantially uh, curtailed uh, production and the business sector is, uh, is suffering. So this is going to have some, not just a few weeks or months, this is going to be a several year uh, process and precisely what I was mentioned, informal, uh, informal workers, uh, workers that depend on remittances and their families, we need to find new ways, uh, both the fiscal space that is necessary, but new ways to reach them, because these are not typically the ones that we reach with the current cash transfer programs we have. Thank you very much, very clear. Um, inevitably, we are getting to questions which ask about how the IMF can help in, this, in the post-COVID uh, situation of, uh, of government debt, particularly low-income countries. Uh, I know that the fiscal monitor doesn't look into this, but uh, I wonder whether, uh, since we had several questions uh, about this, uh, IMF colleagues could, uh, maybe Catherine uh, could, uh, could um, um, address this uh, briefly. Um, particularly, uh, uh, Karin uh, Pastenku from Indonesia asks uh, the question, uh, low-income countries, uh, post-COVID debt uh, clearly will be higher. IFI support is significant, uh, and, and as a result, there will be an increase just on that account uh, in, uh, in, 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 in total debt. Um, and uh, Christina Frey, um, in a very eloquent uh, question, uh, uh, goes around uh, this a little bit too, and she basically um, uh, raises better when the IMF helps and, 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 and supports, whether that would be a chance also to um, uh, have some uh, conditionality on governance, uh, be it for the, for the government, be it for fiscal enterprises, uh, when, you design, when, when you look at, uh, at uh, you know, support packages. Thanks, thanks for that, that important question. Yeah, so um, low-income countries, uh, emerging market economies, but particularly low-income countries are going to face um, big uh, pressures on um, increases in, in debt. Even before the crisis, there were a range of low-income countries then that had were either in debt distress or very high risks of, of debt distress. They were trying to balance you know, development and, and debt, and now uh, the shock. Um, so the, I mean, the, the IMF uh, itself, you know, has, has been in the, in the forefront then with using our um, uh, catastrophe uh, CCRT then um, to provide, you know, debt relief then to some of the, the poorest members. Um, and the IMF managing director, together with the, the World Bank president, then you know called for the the G20 action, and we were very very uh, pleased then at the G20 initiative, um, which is also then uh, you know providing debt service relief um, to uh, to to low income measures uh, countries to really give them breathing room then uh, in the face of this crisis to make sure that they have resources 
to spend for, for health and the lifelines for, for populations. Um, the, the fund has also then called for um, consideration of you know, private creditors to look at offering um, similar terms um, that uh, have been discussed in, uh, in, the, in the G20. Uh, and then the second point on, you know, linking on the importance of governance then as um, debt initiatives free up resources, um, it's, it's really critical. And um, right now, the emergency financing um, that the, the fund does, in addition to the, to the debt relief, there are you know, an unprecedented number of countries who are coming for emergency financing, um, which uh, is... Um, not linked to specific conditions um, because the, the the point of it is uh, is is emergency, but in those those financing arrangements also we're you know going to uh, in, pay attention to um, making sure that you know money is well spent and you know ex post mechanisms to ensure that there's um, transparency and auditing. Um, that governments are establishing, you know, good um, uh, categorizing of the of the the uses of of support um, and uh, colleagues in in our in our group who work on uh, public financial management have been producing lots of good um, guidance then that uh, country teams can use for the good management of of these resources and so I, I point readers also to these. COVID notes that, uh, that we've been doing in the, in the fund that really talk again about how you set up um, uh, the mechanisms to, to make sure that the money uh, is well spent. May I add Thank one you. more one, yes, one yes. issue to that? Uh, brief, briefly. From, a, uh, from, a, from a longer term perspective, and what is, what is important is, is to finance development in a fiscally responsible way. And this is something that we discuss in the fiscal monitor. Uh, two aspects matter a lot. One is uh, a lot of low income developing countries have uh, low tax ratios. So mobilizing, uh, mobilizing uh, domestic revenues matter a lot and uh, involving private sector. Uh, matters a lot. And the second one, uh, very briefly, is, is uh, improving debt management and transparency. So these are uh, the other two areas that we discuss in the fiscal monitor are important once the pandemic uh, abates. Thanks. Excellent. Another group of questions that we touched upon, but not, uh, not uh, pulled it together perhaps enough, because there are quite a few questions about um, the type of policies um, that you would need to, to ensure a tilt to the green, that, uh, that the recovery policies have, have a green dimension that also supports this uh, fundamental uh, public route of, of, of delivering a, a better climate change policy. Uh, Stephen Gosling is asking whether an excise duty on, on jet fuel, for example, could be a good um, tax measure in your view, in that regard, that regard. Others also asking about how to ensure that a low carbon economy and the Sherlock, particularly low carbon economy, um, uh, can emerge um, uh, from this uh, big shock. Um, I know that uh, several factors you have mentioned, but uh, it probably um, for our uh, uh, fellow uh, colleagues uh, in the audience, it would be good to, uh, to summarize it. Uh, um, who would like to go? Uh, Raphael? maybe, or, or uh, Maddie, 
Catherine. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> we have an IMF. Yeah, if you don't mind, yeah, I'd, I'd love to jump in on this because it's it's so important, really. Um, so um, right now, you know, there's a lot of government support that we've discussed. There's going to be more with uh, with stimulus to help um, uh, with the recovery, and it's so critical that this um, is part of the solution and not not you know, part of the, of the problem. There's um, a big opportunity and we can't say that, you know, climate should be back burner now um, because of the crisis, because the kinds of decisions that governments are doing right now are going to have very long-term implications if they are geared more toward um, uh, still the old uh, model. So uh, a couple things, of course, um, using that, that, uh, public support wisely, um, governments that are uh, extending um, support then to carbon intensive industries could mandate that the industries that they support, um, you know, reduce uh, emissions. Um, and we see some examples of this in, uh, you know, France, the, the um, uh, assistance to, to Air France then uh, associated with commitments then um, from, from Air France, some measures in, in, in Canada. Um, so that's one area. Um, and the type of the role of, of uh, green investment, then the public sector also, um, again, when we get to the, the stage where public investment will, will play a role, um, doing the things that the public, invest, public sector can do um, to uh, uh, spend on the the grid, etc. Encourage then um, low carbon uh, investments uh, in in uh, renewables, and then we talked before about uh, the role of of uh, state owned enterprises. Um, this could be, you know, job rich um, at a time where we're going to really need uh, uh, employment. Um, and uh, uh, you mentioned, you know, the the carbon taxes. Um, with low oil prices at uh, this time, maybe this is a you know a good time to uh, again reduce fuel subsidies. Carbon tax is not now, but you know we're going to need those sources of, of of revenue, and so looking at those um, then uh, as part of the package going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to to add to that, I mean uh, we have already very briefly. Sorry, uh, uh, Rafael, we. Yeah, sure. close to I mean, to, to add to uh, Kathy's point, I think if we look at some of the fiscal packages that the countries already wrote in in response to the pandemic, we also started to see, for instance, European Union, Germany have already started to think about fiscal support in greening the recovery. They are talking about uh, recovery support on green investment, on health systems. Those, are, I think, is a, uh, consistent with the thinking that they should, uh, the fiscal support should think about the green recovery aspect. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. We are nearing to the very end of our time. Unfortunately, there are plenty of other questions, and I, I, I commit and promise uh, to our uh, active audience that we will come back uh, to your questions. Some, are, uh, some relate to data, data sharing, the exact sources, which is important, but I think we can uh, take it uh, offline. Uh, if you leave your email address, uh, your availability uh, to us. Um, and um, so I will wrap up uh, with uh, one, maybe one round question. And literally you, you would have 
10 seconds to answer. Um, a year from now, will we be in a strong recovery case uh, with hopefully the right policies? Of course, you will tell me it's all policy dependent, but give, what is your baseline scenario? Given what is available there, what are the good policies, the safe scars, what are the risks? Determine this uncertainty, of course, uh, uh, Simon will remind me again. Uh, but will we be in a, in a reasonably solid uh, recovery uh, in a year's time? And Simon, let me start with you. Recovery, yes, uh, with some sectors booming ahead and some sectors falling behind and us asking them the question, how should we be restructuring these sectors? Excellent. Joka? I think there is tremendous uncertainty, not just, of course, about the health implications of the virus, but also about responses to it. There's a reason the IMF coded it as the great lockdown. Um, so I think the fact that we're seeing many countries move out of lockdowns is encouraging for recoveries because we would be expecting a rebound more quickly as these countries return to capacity. But of course, it remains very uncertain with some sectors likely to face permanent damage from the crisis. And Kathleen, maybe uh, in the name of the whole team, yeah, and uh, the time of interest. Huge uncertainty, but recovery, and uh, we've got to get policies right to maximize then the, the, the potential for that recovery. Great. With that round, thank you. I, I, on, in the name of all our audiences here on Zoom and, and Facebook, thank you all very much. It was a fascinating discussion. A lot of questions answered. Many remains, of course, and news will uh, catch up. I would like to remind our a loyal audience that we will have further web webinars very soon. Uh, on this Thursday, we will have um, a special one on digital currencies um, as crisis uh, management tools. Very interesting. Then uh, we will have one on the crucial role of the state in crisis response. And of course, with our very own uh, Simeon Jankov on June 19th, there will be something that we couldn't really go into this year, finance or post-COVID recovery. So with that, again, thank you very much. Um, and uh, good evening, good, good, uh, good night everywhere, wherever you are. And we hope to see you at our next seminar.